0: Go ahead and take your Bible and turn to the New Testament, to the book of Romans. We're in the seventh uh, chapter of the book of Romans. Pick it up in verse uh, 14. And I'll read down through verse 25. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin, for what I am doing I do not understand, for I am practicing I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin uh, which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of, of the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh the law of sin. Tonight we return to this uh, portion of Scripture here for a second time. I told you last time there probably a few sections of uh, uh, the Bible have caused more differing opinions amongst godly uh, biblical scholars on how to interpret a text uh, than the one before us. Um, and it has, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot to do with who exactly is uh, uh, Paul speaking of here. As you read the text, though, you become very uh, apparent that you're <clears throat> reading the words of somebody who um, deeply cares about the scripture, uh, someone who deeply cares about the law of God, somebody who wants to obey the law, Somebody who's in conflict, however, somebody who's in a very real, deep, intense, uh, personal conflict who is being pulled one direction and then being pulled the opposite direction. And and so he's living a life that's dominated by this conflict. And and if we're all uh, honest with ourselves, I think we're all aware of this warfare that's going on in our life, a warfare that really never existed before we came to faith in Christ, but hasn't ceased since. It's the struggle with sin, Uh, a struggle with sin that was not there before we came to faith in Christ. Again, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the, the normal Christian life. This is the reality of what it is for each and every one of us uh, once we are saved. Uh, a real battle with sin within us that we did not realize uh, before conversion. So the question on the table is, why is that? Why is there this battle? And, and that's what this portion of Scripture is about. Uh, as believers in Christ, again, we're no longer dominated by sin, but in all honesty, we're not dominated by righteousness either. So if we were to express our life as believers in in one word, again, that one word would probably be conflict. There's a very intense conflict. So again, this section of Scripture is dealing with that issue, with the battle of sin, really the battle with indwelling sin, uh, a battle if you're a believer in Christ that you're very much familiar with. Now, before we get to the text in in, in proper, I want to just take a couple minutes to remind us of something that we all know, and I hope it's an encouragement to us by way of uh, remembrance. Don't forget that the main uh, or the most discussed doctrine uh, in this book of Romans is, uh, of course, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, right? The doctrine of justification is really the heart and soul of uh, of this gospel, the activity by where God himself declares us as a believing sinner to be not guilty, justified, legally set free uh, from the penalty of sin before him uh, because of Christ. And then at the same time, declared all absolutely righteous by the virtue uh, imparted to us or imputed to us the merits of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ again by grace alone through faith alone now for the most part if uh, we are uh, been paying attention to our bibles we get it we get the fact that by god's grace christ stands as our substitute christ bears our sin he takes our punishment god takes all of our sin places it upon the person of jesus christ and punishes christ instead of uh, punishing us so that the wages of our sin can be paid for and again we're no longer held legally liable Uh, to the debt of our sin, because Christ has come and he has absorbed that debt. Again, that penalty for sin, which was death. But perhaps one of the things that's uh, overlooked, that in uh, justification we're also granted the positive righteousness of Christ, the positive righteousness of the person of Jesus Christ at salvation. We're granted the perfect righteousness of the perfect Savior. Now, we're not only imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ that is, Christ's righteousness credited to our account, we're actually given the righteousness of the person of Christ. So that the believing sinner is equipped to spend eternity in heaven with God, again, not based on what he or she has done, but again, based solely upon the person of Jesus Christ. So in that great doctrine of justification by faith alone, salvation and forgiveness of sin is not only found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but again a far less perhaps discussed and far less understood fact is the great truth of the righteousness of, of God is not only credited to us but again, or again imputed to us, but listen, at salvation we're actually made righteous. That's what's meant in part by this idea of sanctification. And sanctification is an inseparable part of justification. That God has not just declared us righteous, he actually makes us righteous. Because again, justification and sanctification go together, they're inseparable realities for the believer. Now sanctification justifications declaration by the uh, by the uh, judge of the universe, but sanctification begins at that very same moment the, the at the moment of salvation. Now of course, we understand when I actually when I said we're actually made righteous, I didn't say we're actually made perfect, but we are made righteous at the moment of, of our salvation right? Sanctification begins at that moment. And we understand that sanctification obviously is an ongoing process that we realize will not be perfect until we are glorified. But nevertheless, it is a reality. At the moment of salvation, it's not just forgiveness of sin. At the moment of salvation, there is a very real, a very true divine miracle that happens in the believer that is now changed. Again, think about how many times have we, through this series, brought up Second Corinthians 5.17, for example. It says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Right? New, the word there is kinos. It means new in quality. It's not chronos. It's not like time. Something just new came to existence. But it's new in quality. Because the Bible says that the old self, who we once were in Christ, or who we once were in Adam, the old self was crucified with Christ. Romans 6 and 6. That means the old who we used to be is no longer in existence. That person's dead. Crucified with Christ. Before God, we're no longer identified with Adam. Before God, we're now in full union, identified with Christ. Imputed the righteousness of Christ, but again, given the positive righteousness, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, at salvation, God doesn't just declare us new. He actually begins the process of making us new. So again, salvation is not just a legal declaration only, but salvation is a real salvation. It's a real transformation of life. It's a real change. Because again, who we once were in Adam is no longer true of us. That old man has died, and now we have been recreated, created anew, recreated in Christ. The old man had no potential whatsoever for holiness, no potential whatsoever for righteousness. All the old man could do was sin. All the old man could do was sin and bring forth corruption and fruit for death. But in Christ, we have been given a new quality of life by the resurrected power, the resurrection power of Christ. And by that power, we have been recreated. We have been given a new life that is holy, righteous, and pure. A life that is eternal, Therefore, listen, it's a life that we have been given that has no principle of death in it. Therefore, that new life that we have been given has no component of sin. I'm going to say it again. The life that we have been given has no principle of death in it. Therefore, this new life that we have been given has no component of death. And you say, well, that can't be true. And I say, well, that's absolutely true. Because in the new nature, given to us by God, who is holy, there is absolutely no taint of sin in the holy God who gives us this new life. This new life, again, comes from God. Therefore, this new life is like God, holy, pure, incorruptible. Now, the doctrine of sanctification says that we are progressively being made to look more and more like the person of Jesus Christ, because we've been given this new life. So if you can't claim to be a follower in Christ and you've been given this new life and you're not living a new life, a holy life, a life where you're more and more hating your sin and more and more loving righteousness, if you're not progressively looking more and more like the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the process that God himself started at the very same moment he declared you just, he also said, I'm going to conform you to the image of my son. If you're not looking more and more like his son, guess what? You're not saved. The two things go hand in hand, side by side helpful definition of uh, sanctification from dick mayhew biblical doctrine says god through the holy spirit working in our lives or this is a definition of sanctification god through the holy spirit working in our lives separating us unto himself making us increasingly holy progressively transforming us into the image of christ by subduing the power of sin in our lives and enabling us to bear fruit of obedience that's sanctification that's the inseparable partner of justification. Those whom God justifies, he sanctifies. Now again, think back to, to uh, John chapter 3 with Christ and his uh, conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be what? Born again. You've got to be born again. You've got to be born from above. Why? Well, because in our first birth, our natural birth in Adam, we were born into depravity. We're born in depravity, into sin, rebellion, judgment, under condemnation. So if a man is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, he needs to be born again. That's the doctrine of regeneration. He needs a new life. He needs a second birth. He needs righteousness that he does not possess in and of himself. John MacArthur puts it like this, at our first birth, or he says our first birth was into sin or in Adam. Our second birth is in righteousness in Christ. Our first birth was physical. Our second birth, spiritual. Our first birth made sinners. uh, First, first birth made us sinners until we shall leave this world. Our second birth makes us righteous, fit for the world to come. Therefore, he says we have to understand that then we are the product of these two births. He says we live lives. We live two lives melded into one, and he says that's the source of our conflict. All the faculties that come out of the first birth wage war against all the faculties that come out of that second birth. And though we may not understand the theological elements that are going on, we really do understand the conflict. That's a great statement, a great statement, a helpful observation. The reality of who we are now in Christ, born again, born anew, born new in kind, a new quality, a new creation... Yet we've still got this thing called Adam, or this thing called the flesh that we'll get to here just in a moment. Now I want you to see this because I want to, I want to keep this going here a little bit further. I want to go a little bit deeper. So put a mark there in your Bible and turn over to First Peter, First Peter chapter one, verse twenty-two. And Peter, in the context, is writing to believers. And I think he helps us see this new quality of life, new kind of life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls. We'll stop right there. Since you, in a, uh, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Uh, The the word purified is uh, hagenazo. It just means to make pure, purify, cleanse. It's a perfect active participle, which means it's an action in the past that has a continuing element, a continuing uh, result. You have an obedience to the truth, purified your soul. So he's saying, look, as a believer, your soul has been purified. You now, as a believer in Christ, possess a purified soul. You have a soul that is cleansed from defilement. That's a pretty amazing statement. And again, that's a reality that we don't fo- a reality that we don't often focus in on because we're too consumed with us. We're con- too consumed with our flesh, too consumed with our failures, our shortcomings, to not focus enough on the reality of what God said is true about us in Christ, the reality of the new life that we now possess in Christ. You have an obedience to the truth. Now when you were saved, obedience is an inherent element in salvation because christ is not the savior of those who are disobedient right so he's talking about saving faith an element of saving faith you have an obedience to the truth purified your souls so with a purified soul in the person of the lord jesus christ you have a new you so again at salvation god not only forgave your sins at salvation, God not only cleansed you from your past impurity and sin, at your salvation, God gave you through Christ a new soul, a new life, a new capability for the present and for the future. Again, that's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things pass away, all things new become. That's exactly what Ezekiel spoke of and looked forward to. When he prophesied what God would do for the believer in the new covenant. I'll read it for you. Ezekiel 36 verse 25. God says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. That's the work of God. That's the work of purification. It's not a work, a human work. It is a divine work, as Ezekiel has just said. It's the same thing that uh, Peter says here in 1 Peter 1 and 22. You have purified your souls, right? So how does this happen? Well, he goes on and he says, verse 23... He says, for you have been born again. Again, being born again is a divine work. It's the work of regeneration. Being born again, again, is another perfect participle, demonstrating, again, a past action with a continuing element, continuing result. At your spiritual birth, again, you're not just forgiven, you're cleansed. At your spiritual birth, you're given a a purified soul. You're given new inclination, new desires. Again, that's what it means to be born again by the person of the Holy Spirit, by the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I'm going to take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you're going to be careful to observe my commandments. It's a whole new life. And again, as we saw back with Nicodemus again in John chapter 3, this work of purification... Uh, is uh, is a god thing just like we did nothing to how many of you in the room did anything to contribute to your first birth can you get a show of hands right did did you decide who your parents were going to be when you're going to be born where you're going to be born none of us contribute to our natural birth and out of nicodemus if you remember that in john 3 the conversation again with nicodemus was same thing in our spiritual birth we don't do anything It's all the work of God. The uh, theologians call it monergistic, right? One work, one, one energy, right? It's the sole work of the person of the Holy Spirit who comes and moves and does what he does. It's the Holy Spirit who brings regeneration. It's the Holy Spirit who brings new life. It is, again, the sovereign work of God. Again, verse 23, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable. Again, not human seed, not by human birth, but imperishable. Undecaying is what that word means. That through the living and abiding word of God, that is through the living and the abiding word of God. Uh, the uh, authorized version says, uh, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. Right? Imperishable, incorruptible, by the word of God, which, is, which liveth and abideth forever. So that word incorruptible means, incorruptible means not liable to corruption, not liable to decay. It really means immortal. So how did this new birth come about? This new birth that we now possess in Christ, which is imperishable, uncorruptible, immortal, come to us. How did it come, uh, come into being? And he says, through the living and abiding word of God. We know the Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, by the word of God. Right? That's true. And it's through God's word that he recreates life in us. We who are once dead in trespasses and sins... We hear the living word of the living God, the living truth, and we are called from death to life. We are recreated. We are born again, and we're given a new nature in Christ, completely different from who we used to be, completely different from non-believers around us, given a new life that is incorruptible, a life that's not tainted by sin, but a life that is holy, like the holy God who gave it to us. So we have within us this new nature this seed that cannot perish, this incorruptible seed, because again, what God creates is perfect. It's pure, it's holy, it's righteous. So when you and I were saved, we were made new in Christ, and God has given this new holy life, an incorruptible life, an imperishable life, a life that now loves God, a life that wants to serve God, a life that wants to honor both God and Christ. A life that wants to obey the word of God. And again, a life that is very much different from who he used to be. And we need to understand that reality. We need to understand that reality. That's who we are. Verse 24 describes our physical life. He says, for all flesh is like grass and all glory, all its glory like the flower grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. He's saying, look, because sin is in the world, our human life, our physical life is subject to death. Even for saved individuals, right? We've all been infected with sin, right? And however, the divine life that we have now been given in Christ is not infected with sin. The, the divine life that we have been given that is holy and pure from the holy, pure God himself is not subject to death. Again, therefore, it can't be affected by sin verse 25 but the word of the lord abides forever and this is the word which was preached to you again it's the divine word it's the gospel again it's god's truth that comes and liberates us it's the gospel that again declares uh, that salvation is possible through the person of jesus christ forgiveness of sin and not just forgiveness of sin but the gospel declares that there's a righteousness that we need that is given to us freely through the person of the lord jesus christ and that's a reality because justification and sanctification always go together At salvation, we're forgiven, justified. At salvation, we're also made new creations in Christ, born again with a purified soul, a purified, undefiled soul that is separated from sin because that life that we're given in Christ is an eternal life. That's a pure life. Again, it's a holy life because it comes from a pure and holy God. Now, that is every much a bit of reality as the issue of indwelling sin that we're talking about here in Romans 7. That divine life is every much a bit of a reality in our life as the battle that we're doing each and every day with indwelling sin. That divine life that we're given in Christ, the question is, is that divine life perfect? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that it's perfect because it's the perfect righteousness of the perfect righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with our union with him, we're freed from a dominion of sin. Yes. No, in the sense it's not perfect, because we have to continue to do battle with sin. Sin that remains. We need to continue to pursue holiness. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3. He says, not that I've already attained to it, I've already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that, which I also laid hold of for by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, 1 Peter 2 and 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. 2 Peter 3 and 18, Grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and to Him be the glory now forever and ever. Amen. We have been purified, we've been born again, we've been given a new nature in Christ, Yet we still have to press on. Again, not that I've already attained to it. I've already become perfect. But I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of uh, by Christ. We're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. Christ is perfect. We're going to look like him. Uh, when, when, When we see Christ, we're going to see him face to face. We're going to be just like him. In time, however, we're still waging war against fleshly lust. In time, we're still growing in grace and growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But in this reality, the fact that we've been given this righteousness of Christ, again, is something we don't tend to focus on very much. Because we tend to focus on the negative. We tend to focus on our failings, our shortcomings, our sin. But in reality, we really should focus on the reality of who we now are in Christ because it brings honor and glory to God. It's the work of God in us. It's what he's done, not what we've done. And if we never think about it we fail to give god glory and thanks for what he has done in us this righteous life that he gives us is true for every believer every man and woman who's ever been saved has been given an imperishable incorruptible new life through the holy spirit through the word of god therefore that person cannot done therefore that newly created person in christ has new impulses new longings new desires That are again holy and righteous and pure. Because we've been given the real righteousness of the person of Jesus Christ. And listen, this is where the tension comes. That is the issue right there. That's the issue. That's exactly the point of tension. That's exactly the point of conflict. Because we're both at the same time sons of Adam and sons of God. Sin's still working in us, it's waging war in us. Our our flesh is ever dragging us down. But we have this new created us in Christ which has holy longings that wants to do the right thing that desires to do the wrong thing to to do the right thing that that longs to do the the right thing that's the issue again it's this conflict that is raging within us because of this new us that is still incarcerated in this fallen flesh that's the issue of romans 7 that's the battle that is being waged and it's not a battle between natures because we have a new nature it's a battle with the flesh it's the remaining humanness in us, the, the remaining fallenness of sin in our flesh against the new us in Christ. And we have to do battle with sin, right? We should do that. We, do, we need to do badly with our sin. We need to deal with the issue of indwelling sin and our fallenness in Adam. But again, we also need to realize that's not really who we are in Christ. It's not really the true new us in Christ, this new creation in Christ. Because the newest, truest reality of who we are is we're new creatures in christ we possess the life of christ again an eternal life a life that's never going to end a life that is unstained by sin because it's a life given to us by the righteousness of the righteous person the lord jesus christ himself that makes us fit to enter into his presence since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently one another, love one another from the heart. Uh, this new life gives us a love for others around us that we never had before. We just don't have time to get into that. For you have been born again, out of seed, which is imperishable, but which is imperishable, that is through the living and abiding word of God. That's tremendously encouraging. And again, it's glorifying of God for the reality of what he's done in us, what he has made us into, and it's words that really should bring, bring great joy to our hearts. So instead of saying, woe is me, every time we sin and fail to not do what we desire to do, every time we sin and don't do what we desire to do, we should say, instead of woe is me, we should say, where did that come from? Because that's not really the new me. Right? Since we have in obedience to the truth once forever purified our souls, since we've been born again of a seed which is not perishable but imperishable that through the living and abiding word of God. Because sin in our life is an intrusion. Sin in our new life in Christ is an intrusion. It's a foreign intruder. It's a fierce threatening enemy. And again, it's against the reality of who we are now in Christ. So we need to hate that sin, yes. We need to deal harshly with that sin, no doubt. Because that's not who we are in Christ. I I think we need to understand that. We need to think on that a little deeper. The realities of who we are in Christ, the new life we have in Christ, a holy, righteous, perfect life granted to us by the holy, righteous, perfect Savior. We are not the same people who we used to be when we were apart from Christ. Listen, John Newton said this. John Newton, the slave trader, a very wicked man by his own confession said this. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not even what I hope to be. But by the cross of Christ, I am not what I was. Amen? By the, cross, I am, by the cross of Christ, I am not what I was. That's a great statement. That's a great understanding of this truth. All of this concerning us, right? So again, why do we go on sinning? The reality of who we are? Why do we do this battle? That's again what the issue of Romans 7 is. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're dead to our old man, but we still are alive in Christ. We still have this conflict. This battle with indwelling sin. Someone said uh, this, uh, said, We have a new birth from God, but we still have the reality of the first birth from our parents. Listen, we are like a holy seed in an unholy shell. That's a good picture. We're like a holy seed in an unholy shell. We're incarcerated. We're in prison. We're locked in, bound, and subject to all the weakness and all the wickedness of our humanity, but. The bottom line is sin is no longer the master over us anymore. Sin is no longer ha- sin no longer has dominion. It is still present, but it's helpful to understand the truest and purest reality of who we are as new creations in Christ and then deal with the remaining flesh that creates the problems and conflicts within us. That's a great statement. Right? We are redeemed humanity incarcerated in fallen human flesh. That's the that's the the battle that we're facing. Now go back to Romans 7. And Paul's going to start working all this out, this battle of indwelling sin within us. And last time we were in the text here, we spent almost the majority of the time dealing with the issue of who the person is here. Who is the man in Romans 7? I told you there's four views historically. We heard the arguments, we valued each one of the views biblically. View number one of who the man is speaking here in Romans 7 is the man of Romans 7 is somebody unsaved. This is who Paul was before he got saved. The second view of the man here who's speaking in Romans 7 is doing this, having this uh, struggle, Is that as, as many modern teachers uh, put it forward. I told you uh, the idea that this man is the so-called, quote-unquote, carnal Christian. The third view that was popular historically is this man is a man who's under conviction of sin. And again, that view is very uh, popular by a lot of heavy-hitter theologians. But again, we evaluated all those views. I'm not going to go through them for time. We heard all the arguments. We said, well, some of them have some points of merit. Some of them have no points of merit. Some of them have some points of merit, but they really don't line up with the truth of what is being presented here. Therefore, we're going with option number four. The fourth and final view of who the man here is in Romans 7, he is a mature spiritual believer a mature spiritual believer. Now again, this is the uh, position adopted by almost all the reformers. So again, the reformers saw justification as an entirely forensic or legal declaration uh, of the believer's status before God, but just because the believer is declared justified or righteous by the righteous one, God himself, that does not mean the believer is completely, totally removed from the presence and influence of sin. So as long as the believer is in this earthly body, in this world that has fallen, we're going to struggle with sin. We're going to fail to perfectly obey God's will because that's the power of indwelling sin. Indwelling sin in us is a powerful enemy that a lot of people don't ever talk about, but a lot of believers don't understand. But we have to understand that conflict. Again, who we are in Christ and what's going on. What's the reality that we see? So Romans 7, 14 through 25 is really the normal Christian experience. This is a mature believer. And I think the evidence, and I'll give it to you real quickly and then we'll go back through it, but the evidence for this view is found in one, Paul's desire to obey God's law and then the fact that he hates what is evil. He wants to obey and he hates what is evil. Verse 15. For for what I am doing, I do not understand. I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Verse 19. The good I want to do, I... I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Verse 21, I find in the principal evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Now, the unbeliever doesn't say that. I want to do good. No, I want to do what I want to do, is what the unbeliever says, right? He says, no, I want to do good. I want to do, I want to do what God asked me to do. Secondly, he's humble. He's humble before God. He realizes there's nothing good in his humanness. Most people who do not know, well, I will say this, All people who don't know Christ think very highly of themselves. Not this guy. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present, but the doing of good is not. So he sees himself humbled before God. He realizes there's nothing good in his humanness. He sees himself in sin. But not just sin, that's not the only thing that's in him. He sees something else in him. Verse 17, So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me verse 20 but if i'm the one doing the very thing i do not want to do i'm no longer the one doing it but sin dwells in me verse 21 i find in the principle that evil is present in me the one who wants to do good verse 22 for i joyfully concur with the law of god in the inner man right then he sees something else expressing himself in his body he goes on to say he gives thanks to jesus christ the lord whom he serves verse 25 thanks be to god through jesus christ our lord on one hand to myself i'm uh Uh, I, with my mind, am serving the law of God. On the other hand, my flesh, the law of sin. So Paul has already established earlier in the letter that all of those kind of activities, none of these things are true of the unbeliever. The unbeliever hates God. The unbeliever hates God's law. The unbeliever actually fights against God's law. The unbeliever actually suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. The unbeliever never gives thanks to God. The unbeliever never honors God. Because he's totally dominated by evil. And in this total domination of evil, or by evil, the unbeliever actually encourages, in his arrogance, encourages others to follow him in his rebellion. Is that not Romans chapter 1? Did I not outline that pretty well? That's the unbeliever. Paul here is not an unbeliever. He's writing about himself. He's writing from the position of a mature spiritual believer And he's describing the continuing conflict with sin that we all experience. Now, the best way that I've seen the section in front of us outlined by uh, commentators both of the past and present, the way that makes it most easy to understand is like this. From verse 14 to 25, there's a series of three laments that Paul puts forward concerning his spiritual condition. And within those series of laments, he describes the condition that he's lamenting he gives the proof of that reality and then finally he reveals the source of his spiritual problems so you have the condition the proof and the source now again the first lament is verse 14 through 17 for we know that the law is spiritual but i am a flesh sold into bondage to sin for what i am doing i do not understand for i am not practicing what i would like to do but i am doing the very thing i hate if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So here's the condition, verse 14. We know the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. So what does that mean? Now notice he starts off verse 14 by saying we know. For, we know. For is a conjunction. For, conjunction carries the idea of because. Because. So he is indicating the fact that he's not introducing a new subject. He's actually giving a defense for what he's just said in verse 13. What did he say in verse 13? Verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by the effect of my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh. Verse 14, we know uh, that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. So again, he is affirming in verse 13, the law. Right? Remember I told you he was talking about the law and he's also talking about sin. People were saying, well, look, mm-hmm. if you say we're no longer under, under the law, but under grace, you're saying that the law is sinful. He said, no, 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 I'm not saying that whatsoever. He said, look, the law is actually helpful because without the law, I wouldn't have known what sin was because the law defines sin. The law exposed my sin. So he says, look, the problem is not the law. The law is holy, just, and good. The law is spiritual, but he says, here's the problem. Here's the condition. I am a flesh. So he's contrasting the law and the flesh. What the law is and what man is. The law is spiritual. Again, the law given by God is holy, just, and good. Theologian Charles Hodge says this, the law is the unerring standard of duty, the source of moral light and knowledge, It should therefore be everywhere known, studied, faithfully applied. It's the rule of judgment for our own conduct and that of others, right? There's nothing wrong with the law. Remember I told you over and over again what the law does. It it declares the holiness of the perfect of God, the the holiness of God, the perfection of God. It sets forth the standard uh, uh, of of, uh, God's perfection. The law is not the issue. The problem is the law exposes our sin, sins the issue. And the law is not just looking for outward conformity, because remember, thou shalt not covet. That's a that's a sin of the heart. right? The law is not looking for just outward conformity. The law is looking for inward conformity. The law comes and actually exposes the sin of our heart. Jesus said, you've heard it say that you shall not commit adultery. I say that if you even look upon a woman with lust, you've already guilty of the act, right? It's the heart. So the the law is not looking just on outward conformity. The law is looking on the inward affections of the heart because the heart has to be correct. Perfection is the standard. Honoring God. Again, there's nothing wrong with the law. Paul says, look, the issue is me. He says the issue is man. Look what he says. He says man is of flesh. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. Now, if you have the authorized version, it says carnal. I am carnal. Or if you have the New King James, the new authorized version so let me stop here and explain something again before we get too far. That word carnal... Ah, there you go. See, we do have carnal Christians. No, we don't. We don't. Trust me. The word carnal there is the Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X, in the transliteration. It literally means the flesh. It literally means the soft substance of living things, the body, the material substance, living creatures. If it's used in a moral and ethical standard, or, in, or morally and ethically, it denotes this... Mere human nature, the earthly nature of man, apart from divine influence. Therefore, that which is prone to sin and opposed to God. And that's how Paul is using the word flesh. I am of flesh. Here, I am carnal. So when he says I am carnal, he just simply means I'm a human. He's not introducing a new category that's not biblical called the so-called, again, quote-unquote, the carnal Christian. He's not promoting that idea. And he's not saying, look, he didn't say that he was in the flesh. He doesn't say that. He says of the flesh. In the flesh means that he's walking in open rebellion, outright rebellion against God. He's not saying that. He's not saying that he's not redeemed. That's not the point of what he's saying. He's already said that the true believer is no longer in the flesh. Romans 7 verse 5. That a true believer is no longer enslaved or bound to the flesh in its sinfulness as they once were before they came to Christ. But the true believer, while not in the flesh, listen, a true believer is not in the flesh, that doesn't mean that the flesh is not still in the true believer. That makes sense? A true believer is not in the flesh, that does not mean that the flesh is still not in the believer. Again, the remnants of our humanness. The remnants of the spiritual corruption of sin. Holy seed, bad shell. Right? This still indwells the believer. Again, verse 13. Therefore did that which was good become a cause of death for me, may it never be. Rather, it was sin. Right? In order that it might be shown to be sin by the effect of my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. So Paul says the law is spiritual, but I am flesh, right? I am a man. Opposed to that which is perfectly of God. So again, the nature of the law is like the lawgiver. The nature of the law is holy, just, and good. The nature of man is like what men are. John Calvin says this, when he uh, speaks to the nature of man he says whatever men bring from the womb and flesh is what men are called as they are born he says this as long as they retain as long as they retain their natural character they are corrupt so they neither taste nor desire anything but which is gross and earthly that's a great definition what do men by nature want everything that's wicked Everything that's growths. Everything that's earthly. That's the natural man. The nature of the law is like the lawgiver, holy, just, and good, but we are like our nature. It's the same kind of statement that he's going to make in the verse 18, for he says, I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. The same kind of statement he's going to make in verse 25. So on one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. So again, the Christian in his inner being, in his inner self, has been completely forever cleansed from sin, forgiven, given the righteousness of the perfect one, the righteousness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, that sanctification is never going to be absolutely perfect in time because of the flesh, because of the remaining sin, the desires of the fallen humanity that still desires corruption. Again, a holy seed within an unholy shell. A a new us incarcerated, imprisoned, locked in to failing humanity. It's the same thing that Luther picked out, and I think I said or pointed out to you, and I think I said it to you last time. It's the famous Latin phrase of Luther, symbol justice, act peccator. Symbol justice, act peccator. At the same time, the same person, simultaneously justified, but yet a sinner. That's the reality of life and time. Legally declared justified or righteous by the righteous one, God himself, but not totally removed from the presence and the influence of sin while we're in this body in time. So that's what Paul says in verse 17 and what he says in verse 20. He says, sin still dwells in me. Verse 16, if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good verse uh, 17 so now no longer am i the one doing it but sin dwells in me verse 20 if i'm doing the very thing i do not want i'm no longer the one doing it but sin dwells in me so again paul's not saying at all that he's unregenerate he's not saying that he's in the flesh he's not saying that he's still dead and trespasses in sin he's not saying that he's still serving the devil he's a lover of the world and, a, and rather than a lover of god he's just saying look we, we're just saying what we all know to be true who we are as Christians. We simply acknowledge the fact that the law is spiritual, but we're not. We're still dealing with this issue of the flesh. And Again, we're all well aware of the fact that our sin may be forgiven in Christ, but sin, again, is still present in our flesh. And as men, we fall short of the perfection that God demands, his perfect standard of his perfect righteousness found in the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I said when we we're going through this, the issue is not so much have you not lied or stolen or committed adultery. That's Those are all great questions to awaken your conscience. The real question is, are you perfect as the perfect one? Are you perfect as Jesus Christ? Because he's the standard. And we all go, no, I, I fall short. We know that the law is spiritual, I am of the flesh. We know. Interesting, that term we know is something that is true, again, of all Christians. We know the law is spiritual, I am of flesh, All right. We, we know that, again, sanctification is never going to be perfect in this life in time. And even the most advanced Christian knows that he's no longer a slave of sin, but as someone says, he's still subject to his deceit, still subject or attracted by its allurements. Sin no longer dominates us, but we still struggle with it. Right? There's, this, there's this sense within us that wants to do what we shouldn't do, so we still have this battle. So again, to be called carnal, or Paul using that phraseology carnal, is not equivalent to being categorized in the flesh. It just acknowledges the fact that he's just human still got this unredeemed humanist remaining in us as long as we live. And so Paul goes on to to describe this sense to which he was carnal or of the flesh. When he says, I was sold into bondage to sin. Verse 14 again, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now this is where a whole lot of people run off the rails here. A whole lot of the commentators err in my humble opinion and struggle to correctly understand who Paul is or what Paul is saying. And they attribute these words to uh, spoken as words by a non-Christian, but that's not true. Paul's going to use a similar phraseology in verse 23. He's going to make it clear that the issue here is in his members, his fleshly body uh, makes him a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, verse 23. So again, all he's saying is that in his unredeemed humanness is still a problem. He's not in sin, but sin is in him. He's still got this issue of the flesh. There's this war that's going on within him, between who he now is as a new creation and who he was before he was saved. The unbeliever doesn't know that struggle. It's only once you come to Christ. Verse 22, For I joyfully concur with the law in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is my members. So again, when he says, uh, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh sold into bondage, it doesn't mean like he was deliberately choosing sin to be his master. That's not what it says. That's what the unredeemed man does. Rather, sold into bondage to sin is a passive phrase, meaning that he was sold. He was carried off into captivity. That's the power of sin. And, and again, it was against his will. Uh, the idea of being sold has this idea of being um, of hatred of that reality. He, he despises sin. Because again, it's against his will. <clears throat> He's been captured by sin. Not like the unredeemed man, the unsaved man. He's a willing slave of sin. He obeys sin because he wants to, because sin is his master, it is his master. Think back to Romans 6. L- listen to the phraseology, Romans 6, verse 16. Do you not know that when listen, you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're a slave of the one whom you obey? When you present yourself, he says, "I've been carried off." When you, the old man, when you present yourself, you're a slave to the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. He says, verse nineteen, "I'm speaking him terms because of the weakness of your flesh." For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, that's what the unredeemer does. The unredeemed, unredeemed person always presents himself to, to sin. He's captivated by sin. He likes his sin. He's a slave of sin. So when Paul says here, I was sold into bondage to sin, he's not saying I'm an unbeliever. He's not saying that I'm a slave of sin. He's just saying what, a reality, again, that we understand even as believers, that sin is so powerful, it can continue to have a terrible effect on our life, even as a redeemed individual. And some people, all of us to a certain extent, uh, is going to remain a battle with the remainder of our earthly lives. Again, something that has to be dealt with, something that can't be played with, something that has to be mortified would be the word the uh, King James, I think, would use. We've got to kill sin. Charles Hodge, again, says this, speaking of the believer. There's a kind of bondage a man may be subject to, a power which, of himself, he cannot effectually resist, Again, which against which he may and does struggle, and from which he earnestly desires to be free, but which, notwithstanding all his efforts, still asserts its authority. This is precisely the bondage to sin of which every believer is conscious. He feels that there's a law in his members bringing him into subjection to the law of sin. And in the context when he's talking about law, he's just talking about an operating principle of power. He feels that there is a law in his members bringing him into subjection to the law of sin, that his distrust of God his hardness of heart, his love of the world and of self, his pride, in short, is indwelling sin. It is a real power from which he longs to be free, against which he struggles, but from which he can't emancipate himself. This is the kind of bondage which the Apostle Paul speaks of here when he talks about the fact that he was sold into bondage to sin. It's, again, the issue of the power of indwelling sin, right? That's what he's talking about. Power of sin. So Paul begins this first lament lamenting his condition and lamenting the absolute inability that he has within himself to perfectly obey God's most perfect law. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. So again, sin is so powerful of an entity that even in a believing man, it still hangs on, it still contaminates the man, still frustrates us to do the things that we desire to do, to obey God's law. Here's the proof. Verse 15. For what I'm doing I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. So the proof of the power of indwelling sin, even a mature believer's life, is like what the apostle just said in his own statement. What I'm doing I don't understand, I'm not practicing what I'd like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. What I do, I do not understand. The word understand comes from a Greek word meaning to know. And it's not used here in the sense of knowing factual knowledge, but it is really in the sense of a special, intimate knowledge, kind of the intimate knowledge that a husband and wife has together. So basically what he's saying here when he uses this word, uh, he uses it in the sense of loving, to know, to, to delight in. What I'm doing, I don't understand. What I'm doing, I don't delight in. What, I, what I'm doing, I don't approve of. I don't love. So again, Paul's finding himself doing the very thing he hates and not practicing the things that he'd like to do. What I love and approve, that I don't do. But I do that thing which I hate, that thing which I disapprove. That's exactly what I do. Again, that's the language that every true believer is familiar with. We say that all the time in our lives. And to a lesser extent, that's really the language of every person on the earth, because every person on the earth, saved or not saved, has a natural understanding of the, the word of God in the sense that God has put God's law in everybody's heart, and there's a conscience, and everybody knows right from wrong. Yet in the corruption of the natural man, he has absolutely no ability to do what is right. All he does is what is wrong. is wrong. He violates his conscience all the time. The redeemed man, on the other hand, is not like that. The redeemed man, holy seed corrupt kernel is trapped in his unredeemed flesh and he groans under the bondage of sin he groans under the power of sin that is still present in his fleshly body he struggles against that influence he fights against that influence he longs to obey god's perfect word yet he finds himself not able to either by himself by his own effort or by keeping the law to affect the freedom that he that he wants he's unable to perform that which he desires and approves again verse 15 for what i am doing i do not understand and i'm not practicing what i'd like to do but i'm doing the very thing that i hate so again that's a dramatic contrast to paul's pre-conversion life remember i told you last time as a pharisee he was very happy with himself he was self-satisfied he thought you know he was blameless before the law of god but now he's come to faith in christ he's come in contact with the Living righteous one, and he realizes just how wretchedly short he falls of God's standard of perfection. So that's the proof of the power of indwelling sin, even in the most mature advanced believers, somebody as such as the Apostle Paul. So you have the condition, you have the proof, and now the source very quickly. Verse 16. What's the source of this conflict? Verse 16. If I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law confessing that the law is good, verse 17, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So the source of Paul's inability to fulfill the demands of the law while confessing that the law is good is his inner man. Okay, In in himself, uh, there's a new creation in Christ. uh, The source of failing to do what he wants to do is sin, he says, which dwells in me. That's that battle again. Right? Sin which dwells in me. I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do. I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. So no longer no longer am I the one doing it, the new I, but sin which dwells in me. Now he's not denying personal responsibility for his actions. He's not affirming the Greek philosophical duism, dualism or Gnostic philosophy of the day that said matter is evil and spirit is good. He's not saying, you know, my, my flesh in the sense of I'm just going to cut my hand off and then I'm not going to ever steal anything. You can cut your hand off and then have one hand to steal with, and then you can cut both of your hands off and still have a mind that wants to steal. Right? You can take yourself and put yourself on an island away from everything else and no TV, and you can still lust in your heart, so better cut your heart out. That's what you need to do. You need to cut your heart out and get a new heart. Right? He's not talking dualism. He's talking about a principle of evil that still remains in his flesh. We know that the law is spiritual, I am of the flesh, sold in the bondage of sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I am practicing, I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. Again, uh, and he's not teaching two natures. Now, some of your Bibles may have certain headings that suggest uh, there's a conflict between the old nature and the new nature. I I spent about 20 minutes up front for the express purpose that you would understand the fact that you don't have two natures. You have a new nature in Christ. Amen? Amen? You have a new nature in Christ, a purified soul. So the Christian, it's not like, remember the Flip Wilson TV show, Guys Who Got gray Hair Like Me? He had this character, Geraldine, and there was like the, the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder and going back and forth. And Geraldine always said, You know, the devil made me do it. No, the devil doesn't make you do anything. And there's not this battle between good and bad. That's George Lucas. That's Star Wars. I said that somebody else was somebody at my house the other day. I said Lucas is a theologian. He's trying to promote you, and not a good theologian, he's trying to promote a worldview. It's not biblical. You know, this good force, bad force, and it's nonsense. Entertaining, I guess, if you like star what was it called? The science fiction kind of stuff. Don't buy his theology. You have a new redeemed hue. A new redeemed you inside you. A new purified soul in you. You're a new creation in Christ. That new nature. So it's not a battle with the old nature and new nature. The old who we used to be is dead in Christ. Dead, uh, crucified with Christ. Done away with. The battle is sin. That's the battle is. It's sin. The battle clearly explained. Verse 17. No longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now, again, no longer is a negative adverb of time, again, meaning that, exactly what I just said, that there has been a permanent change, a radical change in the life of every true believer. So the Christian, who is now a new creation, a new creature in Christ, united to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, has been permanently changed. So Paul here, the new Paul, the new I, the new regenerated Paul, again, born again, born from above, the inner man, who he is now in christ no longer approves no longer delights in sin but again he still finds that sin's clinging to him he's not in the flesh but the flesh is still in him that's the battle but now the difference is in christ he hates that he hates that sin he fights that sin but sin's kind of like a deposed ruler that still hangs on He's not reigning, but he's still there in the background somewhere. He's managing to survive. He's trying to find expression of himself through the members of, of the body. Again, that's the power of indwelling sin in the life of the believer. Again, it's going to be a force that has to be reckoned with all the days of our life here on the earth, right? This is very much along the lines. It's not exact parallel, but somewhat along the same thing that Paul told the Galatians. Remember in Galatians chapter 5 verse 17 He warned that there's this conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Galatians 5.17, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, for these things are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. There's an internal war going on. With who he used to be, the old man's us, dead. I got it, but I still got this new life incarcerated in a fallen humanity, and the fallen humanity at times still raises up its head, right? So again, the fact that Paul is a believer here in this section is evidenced by his love for the law, his lament over the sin in his life. His inability to do what he knows God wants him to do. Again, things that unbelievers aren't even concerned about. He says, the law is spiritual, I am flesh. There's this great power of indwelling sin that we have to recognize because we have to recognize in order to do battle with it. We have to understand where the battle line is drawn. right? And again, it's this this uh, thing called sin that dwells in us so this is the first lament something that's true of all of us something i think we can all agree to as a uh, uh, believers in christ something we can identify this is just a normal uh, experience of a christian life a christian uh, uh, life in this world we got this issue with sin the power of indwelling sin right we're under the condemnation of the penalty of the law we understand that and, and what the law does again as i said all through this series is the law drives us where The law drives us to Christ, right? Because Christ is our only hope. In Christ, we find our perfect righteousness. We find our perfect righteousness seated at the right hand of God. And again, it's Christ alone who's sufficient for all. Again, for the sinner who's not repented, who desperately needs to repent, desperately needs to be reconciled to God, his only hope is Jesus Christ. For the saint who is sick and, death, sick and tired of the, the death that remains in him, sick, sick and tired of the battle with sin, your only hope is Christ. Look down verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who set me free from this body of death? Verse 25, and I think we can say it with Paul, right? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. All points to Christ. Have I told you that Christ is pretty important? He's the issue. You need more of Christ. I need more of Christ. We need to fall deeper and deeper in love with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and understand what the Bible says is true about us in Christ. Rejoice for what God has done in the transformation in our life, and then go to war. Right? We'll, Lord willing, finish the rest of the chapter next week. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for our time together in your word, both this morning and this evening. We're thankful for the great truth that you have... Uh, transformed us, changed us, and given us a new, complete life in Christ, a perfect life, a life that is eternal. We're so thankful for that. We're thankful for the ministry of the word that you have left for us to encourage our heart and to point us to you, our God, and to Christ, our Savior. May we grow in our knowledge. May we grow in grace. May we grow in our love for both you and our Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.